Welcome to Passion Church. For more information about Passion Church, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. already. For those of you that have, I'll, every time I say that, for those of you that, I want to say that think that gospel music has gone too far. I don't know why I cannot do that phrase without, it just, some of y'all don't even know, so so you don't even know, so so I'm messing you up already. But, but for those of you that have been attending with us for several years now, you know that every June uh, we do a series, uh, we've been doing a series called Generals, and I attempt to bring in guys and ladies that I feel like are veterans in the word. My dad just says that just as a as a slang for old, but that's really not true. It was really folks that I felt like that could really um, d- d- dig into the word and, and bring us um, good word. But as this year rolled around and I began to pray about the direction that the Holy Spirit would have us to go, I really sensed that the Holy Spirit was saying that we needed to fine tune just a little bit. And so we've adjusted and we started a series this morning called Voices. And so what I've done is I've gone back and as I begin to pray about this and ask God, well, who's a voice to this body? Who would you have that would do more than just come preach a sermon? Because I know how preachers do. We just preach sermons sometimes. I, I just really ask God, who in the mix is a voice to our body? And so as I prayed about that, I really felt like two things came to mind. One was that I needed to give these folks more time. And so what you're going to see is that they're not just going to preach once, they're going to preach multiple times. Uh, And so I said, God, let's do it like that, and and that's what I felt like he said. And then next I felt like he specifically said two individuals. So this is the way this is going to work. This morning my my father's going to minister the word. He will preach again next Sunday, and then he will preach the last Sunday of the month. And all three of those Sundays tie together. So you need to be at all of those because he's just going to build each week on what he's already spoken about. And then in the middle, in the third and the fourth week, Stacy Hilliard is going to be with us bringing the word. So we're excited about that. He spoke uh, last year in our general series and did a phenomenal job. And so I really strongly encourage you, you need to be a part of this because what we've asked them to do is to really seek God's face and to find God's word for us as a body and bring that word. So this morning, would you give a big passion welcome to someone you know very well, my dad, Bob Ely, as he brings the word. Well, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, to experience his presence in this service already. Amen. Well, what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks are the scripture's most startling questions. Because life is filled with questions. Questions that demand answers. In fact, someone said that life is made up of finding the right answers to most difficult questions. Well, if that's so, then I understand my problem. Every time I find the answers, it seems like somebody changes all the questions around. But life is filled with important questions. The question of creation. Where did I come from? Am I created in the image of God with destiny and life and eternal life? Or am I just some product of evolution, the Big Bang? Did I just climb out of the primordial ooze without a purpose just by chance? Am I just an animal that 
my only purpose in life is to fulfill my own needs, my own desires, to live with narcissism, only to be concerned about me, eat, drink, be merry? Or am I more than that? You see, the answer to that question of where did I come from determines everything. It determines your worldview. It determines your place in the world. It determines what you believe about things. It determines a, a, your ethics and your morality and your values and your values of life. Are you just an accident of nature? Or are you a creature with purpose? Where did I come from? That's important. And then another important question is, what will I do in life? Question of career. That's important. The next one is, who will I spend my life with? The life, the question of companionship. Important. And finally, the important question, what will I spend my life for? That's the question of cause. What will I give myself up for? Life is filled with questions, important questions. But the scripture, the Bible is filled with questions too. And those questions demand answers. For the scripture is filled with important questions. In fact, probably the most important question of all. And that question is, who is Jesus? Jesus said it like this, whom do men say that I the Son of Man? And then he made it personal. He said, who do you say that I the Son of Man am? In other words, who is Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? What will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? That determines not only life now in abundance. The answer to that question determines eternal life. Important questions. And the scripture is filled not only with important questions, but it is filled with desperate questions. Remember 2 Chronicles when Israel is under attack, Jehoshaphat finds himself surrounded by his enemies. And he says to God, aren't you the God of the universe? Don't you possess all power and all ability? Didn't you give us this land? Didn't you drive out our enemies? And now we are under attack and we do not know what to do. But our eye is upon you. In other words, it reached a point where he's saying, what am I going to do? What am I supposed to do when I'm under attack? What do you do when you don't know what to do? That is a desperate question. And not only is the scripture filled with important and desperate questions, it's filled with astonishing questions. You remember at the, the man at the pool of Bethesda? Bethesda means the house of grace. He's living under the seven porches or awnings. He's been there for 38 years waiting for the troubling of the water so that when the water is troubled by the angel of God, he can step in and be healed. 38 years he's been there. And the Lord comes up and looks him in the eye and says, Will you be made whole? Duh. You think? I mean, that's astonishing. I've been here for that very purpose. And so the scripture is filled with all types of questions that are important. Important questions, desperate questions, astonishing questions, and startling questions. Questions that get right in your face. Pointed questions. Questions that cut across all the niceties and the pleasantries and the formalities and come right to the point and they startle you. And God demands you answer. You remember the first ones in the book of Genesis? God appears in the garden and says, Adam, where are you? What is this that you have done? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat of? Startling. Or maybe it's, 
Cain coming from the field of his anger where he's murdered his own brother Abel. And all of a sudden the Lord appears on the scene and startling says, where is your brother Abel? Wow. Or maybe it's Jesus in the New Testament with his disciples. They've already seen the miraculous power of God and now they find themselves on the boat in the middle of the storm and they're scared to death. And Jesus turns and looks at them and says, why are you so afraid? How is it that you have no faith or little faith? Startling. Or maybe it's that time Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, now is my soul exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And he says to them, if I ever needed you, I need you now. I want you to watch and to pray for just one hour. And he goes to pray, and he returns to find them sleeping. And he says, what? Could you not watch just one hour? Startling. But I don't believe those are the most startling. I think one of the most startling questions, if not the most startling question in Scripture, is found in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Then someone called from the crowd, Teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, Be aware. Don't be greedy for what you don't have. Real life is not measured by how much we own. And he gave an illustration. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. In fact, his barns were full to overflowing. So he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store everything. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who? will get it all. Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth but not have a rich relationship with God. Startling. Who gets it all? Tonight you will die. And what will you take to your grave? For you see, this incident flows out uh, of Jesus teaching the multitude. In fact, the Bible said that he was walking along, teaching the multitude. He's surrounded. He's talking to his disciples. He starts out by telling them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He tells them that the Father knows how to take care of them. He knows every bird that falls to the ground, and you're more precious than the birds. He tells them that they must confess him before men so that he can confess them before the angels. And right in the middle of that discourse, there comes a voice from the crowd. Do you realize... This is the only time this man will ever be able to talk to Jesus. The only time he'll ever be able to ask a question. I mean, wouldn't you suppose that he's going to ask something really important? Maybe he's going to ask something about sin or salvation or eternal life. Maybe he's going to talk about injustice or fairness. Maybe he's going to say, you're the Messiah and you're supposed to restore the kingdom to Israel and rout the Romans. He's going to say something important. And you know what he said? Teacher, Master, Lord, I want you to make my brother divide the family inheritance with me. And immediately Jesus said, look, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over matters like that? Now sometimes in that day they would come to the rabbi and they would ask him to make a decision about natural things in light of spiritual truth. But Jesus said, that's not what I'm here for. 
I didn't come to talk about natural, material, natural things. I came to talk about spiritual things. And he said, I want you to beware of covetousness, which is an ordinate affection toward money. In other words, all this guy was concerned about was not the spiritual. He was simply concerned about money. He had an inordinate affection and desire toward the natural. And so Jesus said, I want you to take heed and be careful because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. And he goes on in that chapter. He tells them not to be over-anxious about the natural. He says to seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. God takes care of the lilies. They're more beautiful than all the beauty of Solomon and they're here today and gone tomorrow. He takes care of the birds and he knows what you have need of and it's the Father's good pleasure to give unto you the kingdom. And then he says, look, what you need to do is take those natural things and sell them and give them to the poor and you'll have bags that do not wax old. You'll have treasures in heaven and the moth cannot corrupt and the thief cannot steal. And he ends it by saying, one day your master will come back we liken that to the second coming, but he's really talking about death. And he simply said, when your master comes back, will he find your lawns girded and your lamps burning? Will he find you with your work completed? Will he find you at peace with all your friends and relatives and the people around you? Will he find you in right relationship with God? And so out of that discourse and that question, he gives the parable, the story, the video of his day. He wants to make a point. And so he tells them this story. And he says, there was a certain man who was a rich farmer. He had been very successful in all of his endeavors. Now go with me in your imagination. This man is standing on the veranda, the porch of his farmhouse. And he's early in the morning with his coffee cup in his hand. And he's looking out over his fields. And as far as his eyes can see, they are white and ready to harvest. It is a bumper crop. And not only that, all of his old barns are already full. And so he says, what am I going to do? He knew what he was going to do. He's not successful by not making preparation. He had already been to the carpenter's house. How do you think Jesus knew him? He had already been there. And he said, what would you charge? What is the estimate? What is the cost if I tear down all these old barns and you build larger containers for my goods? And so he's standing there viewing his full barns and a bumper crop. And he says, what am I going to do? I know what I'm going to do. I will tear down these barns. I will build larger barns. I will gather in my harvest. I will lay up much goods in store. It will last me for years to come. And when I'm through, I will say to myself, you ever talk to yourself? So, my friend, this is what you're going to do. You have much goods laid up in store so you can eat, drink, be merry. You can relax. You can retire. And all you need to think about is you. Eat, drink, be merry. Take care of your own desires, your own needs because you've got great goods laid up in store. Do you realize no matter what translation you read that story in, that from seven to ten times he used the words I, me, and mine. What am I going to do? I know what I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will be a bigger barns. I will gather in my harvest. I will lay up. All he's concerned about is him. And then it happens. Startling. God breaks in. And God says, fool. Now you need to understand what that word means. 
In the Old Testament, it's Nabal, which means to be empty or dead like a corpse. In the New Testament, it means to be without sense. It means to be without mental sanity. It means to be senseless. It is an individual who does not have enough common sense and enough spiritual perception to order his life correctly. He cannot decide and determine what is more important, the material, the natural, the temporal, or the eternal, the spiritual. God said, you're a fool. Tonight, get this, your soul will be required of you. In 12 hours, you're going to be dead. It's early morning. And the Lord says, 12 hours from now, tonight, you'll go to your grave. And then, who shall all these things be? Who's going to get it all? Everything that you've worked for, everything that you've laid up, all the goods that you have in store, everything that you've spent upon yourself, when you go to the grave, who gets it all? What are you going to take to the grave? And then Jesus said, and so it is with everyone who is not wise spiritually who can't discern between the natural and the temporal and the eternal and who lays up all these treasures for themselves but is not rich in their relationship with God startling and so the startling question is simply this what are you going to take to the grave I mean you only had 12 hours to live You know what? You're going to die. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment. Whether it's 12 hours, 12 days, 12 months, 12 years, or 20 years, death is the great equalizer. You can't avoid it. The only thing certain in life they say is death and taxes. You're going to die. Every one of us is going to come to the same point and say, and I know the young people think they're bulletproof. I understand that. But you're not. You are going to face death. What if you knew that you only had 12 hours to live? Somebody said, every man's life ends the same way. It is only the details of how he lived and how he died that distinguishes from one, one man from another. And most of us don't want to know when we're going to die. In fact, every survey that's ever been taken said people do not want to know when they're going to die. It's kind of like Woody Allen said. He said, I don't mind dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But we're all going to face it. And if you only had 12 hours, if you knew that by tonight you were going to be in the grave, what are you going to take? You know what he said? I'm going to rest. I'm going to relax. I'm going to retire. I'm going to consume everything upon myself. I'm going to eat and drink and be merry. That was his only purpose. If you only had 12 hours to live, what would you do? Is there a relationship that needs to be healed? Why are you waiting? Is there a restitution that needs to be made? 
a, a card that you need to write, a call that you should have made, an email that you should have sent, a text that would solve problems? Is there something that you've left undone? Is there repentance that you need to offer to God? A man said, live your life in such a way that any day would be a suitable capstone, a crowning achievement for your life. Live so that you need not change your mode of life, even if your sudden departure were immediately predicted to you. What would you do if you only had 12 hours? What relationship, what wrong would you make right? What repentance? In other words, what are you going to take to your grave? Are the things that you are living for worthy of Christ dying for? Well, the fact remains that when you're dead, you're dead. Oh, I know what we do at the funeral. We walk by and we say, they look so natural. No, they're dead. I mean... You can have a $500 suit, the prettiest dress, the jewelry everywhere, but when you walk by that casket, you're just dead. And so what are you going to take to the grave? Well, there's some one thing that you can't take, and that's gold. Naked you came into the world, and naked you go. You brought nothing in, and you can take nothing out. You are not going to take your possessions to the grave. Not your houses, your lands, your bonds, your stocks, your 401k, your guns. They're not going with you. Now, in the older cultures, they used to try to do that. When somebody died, they'd kill the horses. They'd kill the wife, the children. They'd kill other soldiers. They'd take the armament. They'd take everything, bury it with them so that they could have it in their journey to the afterlife. And we've opened those graves, and you know what we found? Artifacts. Those things are still there. They didn't make it to the other side. In fact, I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse yet. And the old Spanish proverb simply says, there are no pockets in a shroud. No matter what you have, no matter if your barns are full, when you go to the grave, you will not take your possessions with you. Like one story I heard of a man who loved his car and he, he was quite a flamboyant character. And so he decided he's going to be buried in his car. And they took his car and the, the embalmers and the funeral director put him in the front seat and dressed him in his finest clothes and gold chains around his neck and a drink in his hand and a cigarette out of his mouth and buried him in his car. And you know what one friend said? Man, that's living. No, that's dying kind of like the guy said he was going to beat it he's going to take him with him and so he took he got his three friends together and he got three envelopes and he put $25,000 in each envelope and he said when you walk by my casket I want you to put that envelope in my casket I'm taking it with me and so on the funeral day they did put the envelopes in the casket months later they met one another on the street corner and one man said I've got a confession to make he said before I put that envelope in there I took $5,000 out and gave it to one of my charities and the other guy said, well, I need to confess too. He said, I took $10,000 out of my envelope and I gave it to the homeless kids. And the other guy said, I'm ashamed of you all, righteously indignant. He said, I did exactly what he wanted. I took the $25,000, put it in my bank account, and I wrote my personal check and put it in the coffin. You're not going to take it with you. And yet, 
Don't we try? Max Lucado says we're, we're like children that build sandcastles. Now the kids build these elaborate sandcastles on the seashore and they know the waves are finally going to come in, the tide's going to rise, and the sandcastle will be swept away. But not we adults. We build them high and elaborate and add everything we can to them and we stand trying to guard them from the encroaching tide. But regardless of how hard we try, we're not going to take them with us. They're going to be swept away. It's like the rich man... And Lazarus, the rich man, died and was in hell, being in torment. Lifted up his eyes and wanted one touch of water. And all of his gold and his possessions could not buy one moment of relief. Because you cannot take your possessions to a grave. Not only that, you can't take your power. Well, I know there's differences in power levels on the earth. There's kings, and, and but not at death. Death. Brings every man level. Read about it in the book of Revelation. That when the great white throne judgment came. The small and the great. The king and the pauper. The mighty and the weak. They all stood equal before God. What does your power mean. When you stand in the presence of the king of kings. And the Lord of lords. Whose name is above every name. That in his name every knee will bow. And every tongue confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord to God the Father. To the glory of God the Father. Your power is not going to mean it. You can't take it with you. And you can't take your positions. Titles look good on tombstones. But they mean nothing in the presence of Jesus Christ. He's the one that has the titles. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. He's the bright morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000. He is the lily of the valley. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the lamb of... And what is your title going to mean when you die? There we shall know, even as we're known. I learned about it in 1970 when we went to an evangelism conference in Washington, D.C. Okay? Washington, D.C. Presidents and senators and diplomats and heads of state, and we were in this hotel. And one of our administrative assistants was trying to impress the hotel clerk. And he said, sir, don't you understand this is concerning the, the, the general superintendent of the Pentecostal Holiness Church. And that clerk is looking at him like, what? I'm surrounded by senators and representatives and heads of states, and you're trying to impress me with that title? He just smirked at him. Right now, I realize in my own life, some, some of the kids still call me Prez. And, and I hope that's a term of endearment and respect. I think it is. But I just got a metal, uh, an email from one of the ladies, young ladies who went to our school. And she started out, she said, President Ely. And then she said, I don't know what else to call you. And I wanted to say, how about Bob? You know, that's my name. What does the title mean? What does reverend and bishop, and what, what's that mean when you die? It doesn't mean anything. Like the guy that said, I thought I was just a has-been until I woke up one morning and realized I am a never-was. It doesn't mean anything. You're not going to take it with you. It's not your titles. It's your testimonies. Pharaoh had the title, but Moses had the testimony. He had the name of I am on his lips and the rod of God in his hand. And Pilate had the title. He was the Roman governor. But Jesus had the testimony of his father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
And King Agrippa had the title, but Paul had the testimony. I met him on the Damascus Road, and I've never been disobedient to that vision. One man said, I don't want my life to be defined on what's etched on a tombstone. I want it to be defined by what's etched in the hearts and the lives of people that I touched. What are you going to take to the grave? You're not going to take your gold, your possessions, your power, your positions. Well, there's some things that you might, but you don't want to take. You don't want to take your grief, your regrets, your woulda, shoulda, couldas. One man said, and I agree, that when it comes to guilt trips, I'm a frequent flyer. Because I'm always saying what I could have, should have done, what I could have said, ought to have said, letters that I should have written, visits that I should have made. And if we're not careful, we let those things go. And they follow us to our grave. I mean, I've already reanalyzed the ball game last night. If Scott Brooks had kept his mouth shut and hadn't got a technical foul, we would have won 101 to 100. Now think about it. Amen. But we try to take those to the grave. Words that were unspoken or never spoken Griefs, regrets. It's like the story I read of a man who married a much younger woman. She was beautiful and he loved her. Couldn't believe that she would even marry him. But now he is insanely jealous. He constantly makes her life a living torment in hell. He, he accuses her falsely of looking at other men. He monitors her every action. He is insanely jealous. He puts so much pressure on her that it actually led her to an early grave. And walking away from the funeral, he comes back to the house and finds her journal. And on every page, it's the same thing. I love him so much. I have eyes only for him. I don't know why he thinks I would look at anyone else. He's the only one I've... And he drops the journal in tears streaming down his face. And he says, oh, for five minutes more to tell her I really loved her. Too late. You don't want to take your regrets and your griefs to the grave. And not only that, you don't want to, but you might take your grudges. You know, those relationships that are not healed, the hurts, the broken things in your life, the hurt feelings, the caustic words, the criticism, the incidents that, that you can't forget and you can't forgive, and now you can even barely remember what caused them. And yet they're still there. One of the saddest stories I read is in Second. Uh, uh, first Kings when David the Bible says the days came for David to die and he looked at his son Solomon and he said I go the ways of all the earth death's going to come for everybody even if you're a man after God's own heart and he starts real well he says Solomon son this is what I want you to do I want you to keep the commandments of God walk in his statutes so he can fulfill all of his promises toward our family those that did me good you do them good and then you know what he said but remember Joab. And you remember how he killed those that were more worthy than he. And he has blood on his hands. And you do not let him go down to his grave in peace. And then he said, remember Shimea? When I fled from the, the, the wrath of my own son Absalom, he cursed me. And I promised him that I would not kill him with the sword. But you're a wise man. Do not let him go down to the grave without blood. You want to take that? Broken relationships. See, there are things you're not going to take. Go. There's some things that you might take, but you don't want to, which is your grief and your grudges, and you don't want to take your guilt. 
for the wage of sin is death, separation from God. And we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible said some men's go before, sins go before them, the judgment, and some men's follow after, but they all wind up there. I want to ask you, what sin, what habit, what addiction, what misstep, what shortcoming is worth taking to the grave? Sin separates us from our God. It is our iniquities that cause Him to turn His face away from us. And what sin in your life is worth hell? Now I know we don't talk about that, but you remember how Jesus described hell? Not only is it a place of separation, but it is a place of punishment where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. I didn't say that. Jesus said that. And you know what He's talking about? Not only are you separated from God, not only are you punished for your wrongdoings, but it is a place where your desire level never ends. You desire, but it's never fulfilled. Remember the rich man? He wanted one touch of water on his cup. He fell. What guilt in your life? What sin is worth going there? So what are you going to take? Well, what are the things that you must take. Well, the first thing, you've got to take the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For the Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, He died for us. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He offered up one sacrifice for sins forever. He took my sins out of the way, nailed it to His own cross. He is not only the expiation, the cleansing of my sin, but He is the propitiation for my sins. He is the one that turns aside the wrath of God. In Adam we all die, but in Christ we're all made alive. If we're in Him, we're a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Amen? We are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works, uh, lest any man should boast, but it is the gift of God. What you must take to the grave is God's grace that covers your grief, and God's grace that covers your guilt, and God's grace that covers all the grudges of your life. And out of that grace, you know what I want to take? Godliness. Oh, I know my own righteousness is like filthy rags. But I stand complete in Him. He is all my righteousness. He went to the Father, offered up the perfect sacrifice for sin so that the Lord could impute back to me not my own righteousness, not my own godlikeness, but what Jesus accomplished for me on the cross so that when the Father sees me, he doesn't see my failure. He sees the sacrificial son, blood of His Son and He declares me righteous, that I am Godlike. What you need to take is not only the grace of God, but out of that grace, God-likeness. Justified, He said. Just as if I'd never sinned, I have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only Godliness, out of His grace, I want to take good works. Remember the story in Acts of Dorcas who had passed away and dead and it's a funeral and they call Peter and when he gets there the Bible says she is absolutely surrounded by the widows and the women that she had helped and they're holding up aprons and dresses and other good deeds and alms work the Bible said that she had done for them and what had followed her to the grave were those good works that she had done by God's grace and what I want to take to the grave is not only his God likeness 
but I want to take good works because the Bible says that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will be judged according to our works. The Bible declares that blessed is the man that dies in the Lord because he does cease from his labor and his works do follow him. And when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our works are tried as by fire. It has nothing to do with salvation. And he said some men's works were like wood and hay and stubble. They're earthy and earthly and material and natural and they're on the surface and the fire burns them up. But some men's work were like gold. And gold is for a king. That's the royal gift, the kingly. Some of the works we do are godly. We do it for God and his glory. And some men's works were like silver, and silver is the color of redemption. And some of the works we do are redemptive works that touch the lives of others. And some were like precious stones, which are an example of eternal. They're works that last when everything else fades and the fire doesn't touch them. But notice the difference. The wood and the hand stubbles on the surface. But gold, silver, and precious stones, you have to mine into the earth for that. You have to work for that. That's what I want to take. I want to take the God's grace that covers my shortcomings, my grief and my guilt and my grudges. I want to take good works. I want to take a God-like nature. And most of all, I want to leave this world and go to the grave with gratitude. Gratitude that floods my heart and fills my mouth. I want to have gratitude for His grace. I want to thank God for His grace that saved me. David put it like this. He said, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Mercy! I didn't get what I deserved. Goodness, grace. I got what I didn't deserve. And I want to praise God for His saving grace. I want to be filled with gratitude for a sanctifying grace, for a supplying grace, for His sustaining grace, for His grace that is sufficient no matter what happens in my life. I want to go out of here with gratitude for God's grace. And then I want to leave here with gratitude for my family. After almost 50 plus years, she is still the most beautiful, wonderful, helpmeet, supporter, mom, Grandma in the whole world. And I love Edith with all of my heart. I've got gratitude for her. I want to go with gratitude for Steve and Stephanie. For all the times I missed with them. Trying to minister Jesus to somebody else. And they've never held that against me to let me do it. And gratitude for Julie and Gary my son and daughter in love for their gifts, their talents, for their love, for their family, for their ministry in the kingdom, for my honorary grandchildren who put up with my teasing and my corny jokes. I want to go out with gratitude for my friends. In the first service, we had special visitors, Jim and Peggy. Fifty years of friendship. I saw God and Jesus Christ in Jim's life at the University of Oklahoma. So different. He, it's the only non-fraternity person that I know of that ever won outstanding freshman at the University of Oklahoma and it was because God was alive in his life and the power of Christ filled him. And that godly example was so powerful. 
that he led me to Christ, introduced me to my wife, part of my wedding, I was a part of his wedding, and for 50 years through thick and thin and laughter and sadness, we've been friends. And I could talk about the Palisano family and the Jones family and the Oakland family and other people, but I want to leave... I want to leave here with gratitude not only for my friends, but for my church. In 1966, they licensed me. In 1967, they ordained me to preach. And they, through these years, have opened their doors to allow me to preach and to touch people with revivals and ministry and serve in positions. And I want to thank God for you, my friends, who love me care about me and support me who surround my surroundings and who love me even enough to correct me I know what I want to take to the grave not gold not some title etched on a tombstone I hope on mine they put a follower of Jesus or maybe they should put he tried to follow Jesus because I've made a ton of mistakes and I don't want to take grief and grudges and gold. I want to take God's grace. And a life like Him and works for Him. And a heart filled with gratitude. And I close. Jesus talked about three men. He talked about a rich young ruler that came to Him and said, What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, Take what you have, sell, to, sell give to the poor, lay up treasures in heaven, take up your cross, follow me. And he was so burdened, he said, that's too hard. And then he talked about this rich farmer. Big barns, full of goods. So busy. Too much. And then he talked about the rich man in hell. And he wasn't a burdened man and a busy man. He was a buried man. And then it was too late. And no matter how bad he tried, no matter how bad he wanted to send somebody back, it was too late. God can save a burdened person that says it's too hard. He can save a busy person that says too much. He can't save a buried person. Because when you're at the grave, if you're righteous, you'll be righteous still. If you're just, you'll be just still. If you're unholy, you'll be. there's no changing there. What if you had 12 hours? What if you knew right now, 12 hours, you're going to be in the grave? What are you going to do? The demons met with the devil to determine a plan, a strategy. How can we stop the gospel of reaching people's hearts so they can have eternal life? One little demon said to the devil, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to earth and I'm going to tell them there is no heaven. And the devil smirked and laughed. And he said, that's not going to work. They're created in the image of God. Eternity is placed within their heart. They're never going to believe there's no heaven. Another little demon stepped up and said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go and tell them there's no hell. And the devil laughed out loud. He said, that's not going to work. They have a conscience. They have this innate sense of right and wrong and fairness and justice and they know that what they, they sow, they're going to... 
you can't. That won't work. And so the third little demon jumped up and said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go tell them there's no hurry. And the devil said, that'll work. Only 12 hours. No matter what you've laid up, no matter what you're striving for, working for, think that you have in store, with only 12 hours, who gets it all? What are you going to take to the grave? I think it may be kind of like this song I heard. It's a new song to me. It's called Trust in Jesus. One of these days we will stand in judgment for every single word that we've spoken. One of these days we'll stand before the Lord, give a reason for everything we've done, and what I've done is trust in Jesus, my great deliverer, my strong defender, the Son of God. I trust in Jesus, blessed Redeemer, my Lord forever, the Holy One, the Holy One. What are you going to do when your time has come? Your life is done and there's nothing you can stand on? What will you have to say at the judgment throne? Well, I already know the only thing that I can say. I trust in Jesus, my great deliverer, my strong defender, the Son of God. I trust in Jesus, blessed Redeemer, my Lord forever, the Holy One. There's nothing I can do on my own to find forgiveness. It's by His grace alone. I trust in Jesus. I trust in Jesus, my strong Start off. What are you going to take to your grave? I want you to stand with me right now. Father, I thank you that your Holy Spirit's here, that you brought us to this place for a purpose, that you've cut through all the niceties and the formalities and the pleasantries. And you say, fool, empty, senseless. Without spiritual sanity is the person that lays up in the natural and doesn't order his life for the spiritual. Because if we're not ready to die, we're not ready to live. Help us to answer this question. We need your grace to cover our guilt and your grace to cover our griefs and our grudges. We need your God-likeness. We can only trust in you. And I ask you to help us to do that right now while every head's bowed. If only 12 hours. What relationship do you need healed? What restitution, phone call, email, letter, visit should you make? What repentance should you offer to God? If you only had 12 hours, what would you take? To that place of death. You need God's grace. And if there's any sin, any shortcoming, any failure, any grief, any guilt, any broken relationship, anything that needs to be under God's grace to make you ready for that moment, I want you to step out from where you are. They're going to sing. And as they sing, I want you to come. The prayer team's going to come and pray with you. But you need to pray right now. Brother Bob, 
there's, there's a guilt, there's a grief, there's a grudge, there's something in my heart, a restitution that needs to be made, a, a wrong that needs to, I need under the grace of God, and I want to be ready. He'll find me with my work completed, living at peace with Him and everyone else, ready for His coming, ready for that moment. If you're not ready, I'm going to ask you to step out this morning right now and come here to the front with us and we're going to pray for you individually. Would you do that as, as they say? You want prayer. I want you to come right now. Startling. But there's some things, Brother Bob, I need under the grace of God through Jesus Christ. There's guilt and grief and grudges. I don't want to take them. I want to leave with gratitude. Would you bring it to the Lord right now, quickly? I want it under the blood of Jesus. I want to know that I'm ready. I want to know that it's all under the blood. Hallelujah. I want prayer. Would you come? The Holy Spirit speaking to you. I know it's startling. I expected it to startle you. But you've got to answer it. What are you going to take? Is it all under God's grace? Is it all forgiven, covered, healed? Hallelujah. Father, I hope and pray today that right now you would make us like the Apostle Paul. He could look back at his life without fret, without regret. He could say, fought a good fight, kept the faith, finished my course. That he could look around him without fear and say, I'm ready to be offered. And he could look ahead in the future and say, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. No fret, no fear, only faith. Lord, I ask for your people that they would know 12 hours, 12 months, 12 years. It's all under your grace, and we're going to go out of here with gratitude for all that you've done through Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to answer it in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that as a body, as a congregation, as a group of people, as a family, that we would come to the place where we would do more than just sing about giving ourselves away. That, that would be how we live. So that when our time comes, we will have made a mark on others and we will have given ourselves our life to your service, I pray. God, I pray that would be the case for each person that counts themselves as a part of this family. That we would be known as people that have surrendered their life to helping you and helping others in your name. We ask you to accomplish this in our midst and in our lives. Father, I pray that you take the word that we've heard today and that it would challenge us, that it would be a voice that calls us to decision. I pray that you would accomplish that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. You may be seated for just a moment. Let me just welcome you here this morning. If you're visiting with us for the first time, if you would do us a favor and
Welcome to Passion Church. For more information about Passion Church, please visit us online at www.passionchurch.tv. Now let's join the service already in progress. 